Now please take your Bibles once more, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy in the chapter 2. Again, our attention really will fall again back on verse number 21. We'll look particularly at the second part of the verse. Well, let's read the entire verse and then seek God's face together. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honour, sanctified, and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. We look to God again to bless his word and to our hearts. Let's bow together, please. Encourage all of you, please pray for yourself right now. Pray for uh, this preacher. Pray for the word uh, to come to your heart with freshness. And let's ask the Lord's help. Eternal God, it's a solemn thing again to come before your word. We, we realize, O oh Lord, it's very much part of our habit. We come week after week and the weeks just keep coming so quickly. We're so used to this experience sitting for a time with the bible in front of us help us O oh god to just to recalibrate our thinking and realize what an awesome privilege this is this is that we'd be in your house on your day with your word meeting with your people and oh god help us therefore to come with a renewed sense of reverence with a desire to understand your word may it be clear I certainly pray again for help to rightly divide the word of truth. Pray for grace in that regard. Help us, we pray. Watch over us now. Bring the word to each and every heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are certainly living in interesting days. These last days, mentioned, I think, in chapter 3, verse 1, perilous times shall come. We live in days where there is widespread iniquity all around us, not discreet but in the public square. And yet at the same time there is undoubtedly around, around us, there is a spiritual hunger. It is true that genuine believers desire renewal and awakening. There is a desire for conversions and consecration. I think that explains in part a lot of the interest around the events in Ashbury and were they really of God, the university there? Was this really a work of God? I listened to a BBC radio podcast this week that in all of its political discussions in America also included a discussion of the Ashbury revival. You really should listen to British commentators trying to understand the desire for revival in America, they have absolutely no idea what's going on. Such is the secularism in the UK at this time. And so whilst you look at this nation and think, wow, this nation has gone to the dogs and in many ways the iniquity is abounding, yet there is still amongst so many people a recognition that there is a God in heaven and that there is a desire for God to move in these days. There is that hunger I'm not saying it's pervasive or widespread, but it is real and it does exist. So there's a desire. Oh, that God would work. And we don't want to embrace the skepticism that would crush hope that God is able to work. But the hope that would defeat skepticism is the hope that may also cloud discernment. And a positive impulse for spiritual experience will often open the door for all manner of false teaching. 
When there is this burden for experience, and there's a lack of awareness regarding that experience, then the door is wide open for all manner of falsehood to come in upon the people of God. You see, when falsehood is present, it it must be exposed and confronted. Because false teaching is harmful to the Lord's people. Here again, we find ourselves wrestling with this theologically. We, We understand and believe that God keeps his elect people. That they are preserved from falling. And so we we get that and so you say, well, how can false teaching, how can it really be harmful if God is going to keep his true church? You ask that question. Why do we worry about false teaching if God is going to preserve his people? Well, of course, my response, you know it already, I'm sure. That is essentially a hyper-Calvinistic understanding of false teaching. We are responsible to guard the sheep. We are responsible to watch out for the wolves that will come and harm the flock of God. There is the recognition in these chapters. Chapter 2 of 2 Timothy. False teaching does real harm. It subverts the hearers. It promotes ungodliness. It even overthrows the faith of some. Does it expose the false professors? Undoubtedly. Those who are falsely Uh, Lining up with Christ Jesus, they're exposed by their embracing of false teachers and they go out from us because they're not of us. But at the same time, false teaching does real harm to the spiritual vitality of those who are truly God's children. It damages their faith. As the truth builds up, so error tears down. And we are to be edified, not torn down. And so please, don't ever get to the point in your mind that you think false teaching is not important. It is vital to be exposed and confronted. And when God does do a work, yes, undoubtedly, false teaching will come in. Because the devil, as it work, is at work in the false teachers. But those who seek to be faithful must indeed exercise true discernment. And so the church needs what we've termed in recent times a serious, separated, and a sanctified ministry. Such a ministry is both essential and beneficial. Now, I don't think you suppose this, but just in case you do, let me state it. I have not been preaching these last number of weeks in some endeavor to self-congratulate my own ministry. I abhor that sort of idea. I find the last few weeks very, very searching and challenging. Regarding my own conduct and my own ministry in this place. And what I do regarding my own, my own life as a sanctified man of God. So my desire is not to pat myself in the back. It is simply to teach the next part of the next portion of God's word that we're going through. And so yeah, I understand the scrutiny falls upon me as the teaching elder in this church. But my desire goes beyond that. That you would see the necessity of praying for our ministers and our missionaries. That this sort of ministry would be at the very core of their identity as a man of God. And beyond that. That if those of you must move and leave and go somewhere else in the future geographically. That this is what you would seek out. That you would not settle for less. Because it's beneficial indeed essential to every child of God that they put themselves under a serious separated ministry of those who are sanctified unto the Lord. Robert Murray McShane, of course, well-known pastor in Dundee, well-known often for dying very young, age 29. 
And yet a man of God who saw the Lord do great things wrote to another minister on one occasion. He said to this minister, your own soul is your first and greatest care. Seek advance of personal holiness. It is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God's. And he's writing the time when English language was preserved from the abuses of today. Awful does not mean bad. It means awesome, powerful in God's hand. A holy minister is a powerful, awful weapon in the hand of God. God working. That's our text. Meat for the master's use. And that's where I want us to go in our thoughts today. In the context of false teaching and the need for a such a serious ministry, a sober-minded ministry, there is the recognition that such a ministry is in the Lord's hand. And with such a ministry, God can do great things. And God is pleased to do great things. And even today, in our generation, God is doing great things. These ministries are not hopeful. They are real and true. And God is still at work in his church today. And so you see in verse number 21 that this man purging himself from false teaching, a man who's sanctified in his own, he's set apart for Christ's work and also pursuing personal holiness, this man is meat for the master's use. How so? Because he's prepared unto every good work. Now here, please note the connection. The word and is in italics in original. And the idea here is that God uses these men By preparing them and equipping them for every good work. God prepares the man to use the man. God prepares the ministry to use that ministry for his own eternal purposes. That's a wonderful promise. Prepared for every good work. These faithful men are used by the Lord in the performance of these good works. And therefore, if we take the time to examine these works and think about these works... We will see what the Lord is pleased to do in his church. What does the word God look like in his church? It's a chat, isn't it? What does the word God look like? What if God does come in unusual power? If God comes in unusual power, these things are simply amplified. The regular works of God are held more precious and more dear. So what is the work of God? Well, first of all, There is the proper use of the word of God. The proper use of the word of God. Prepared unto every good work. Now here, we must be careful in our our interpretation of this verse. That we don't allow our minds to go wherever we please. Every good work. You could go every direction, couldn't you? But we have a very important parallel in the context of 2 Timothy. That must govern our understanding of the good works mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And it's over in chapter 3, again, the well-known text, chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto what? Unto all good works. See the connection here? The preparedness of the man of God, 2 Timothy chapter 2. The preparedness of the man of God, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
And so we begin to refine the good works by those two parallel passages. Now we'll come eventually to Second Timothy chapter 3 in some more detail. But for now, let me just make the observation that the man of God referred to in verse number 17 is more than likely the minister of the gospel. Rather than just simply being a term for a believer. Not that a believer is not a man or a woman of God. But rather Paul is likely using this term man of God as a corresponding term to the same term in the Old Testament. The men of God, the prophets of the Old Testament. You see in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11, Paul says to Timothy, But thou, O man of God. And it seems to be the case that this is a particular designation of Timothy as a servant of God in the public ministry. That's not saying for a second, 2 Timothy 3 is not saying for a second that the Bible is not useful for every believer. You say, see that and say, well, the Bible is only for the man of God. No, the, the very opposite is the case. It is because the Bible is sufficient for the man of God to do every good work. That the Bible is therefore sufficient for every believer sitting under the word of God. It underscores the importance of the Bible's sufficiency. It's enough for the preacher to preach the word of God. Thereby, it is enough for every person in the pew to sit under this preaching and benefit from the word of God. You see, what you see here is, and again, so often, verse number 16 is looked upon as the duties of the Bible teacher. Doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. But when you take it with chapter 2, verse 21, you also see not only is this the duty of the man of God, It is the work of God through the man of God. When a man of God is in God's hand, these are the things that follow. The word of God is properly used for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. This is what a faithful ministry should look like. It is the Lord in his grace who enables the faithful man of God to do what is right with the word. I'll come back to this idea of the Lord enabling more later, but just very briefly turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. I just want to kind of underscore this, this connection of thoughts here. 2 Timothy 3. These are the things that the man of God will do with the word of God. 2 Timothy 2. The man of God's in God's hand. He's meat for the master's use. Thereby the connection is this, that God prepares the man of God to use the word of God properly. And so you've got to hear... 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 11. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, we're not certain exactly what the ministry is involved in 1 Peter chapter 4. It's used there in verse number 10 as well. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And so it may well be there's a, an abundance of ministries involved here. But part of that is the speaking ministry and they are to use those gifts as of the ability which God giveth. So how do you know that God is working in a church? Do the lights flash? Does the building shake? 
the word of God is properly used. God works in his church when the word of God is properly used from the pulpit. It's not the only thing. I'm not suggesting it's the only mark. But it's undoubtedly a mark of God's working when the word of God is used in a proper fashion. Properly understood and properly applied to the believer's heart. Every believer needs this. Let's take the time in 2 Timothy chapter 3 just to mention these things without too much detail. But these are the four things that the believer needs the man of God to do with the word of God. There is the necessity. Every believer needs to sit under doctrine. Here I want to try to move you away somewhat from how this word is often understood in reformed circles. We often hear the word doctrine and we think to ourselves, well, that must be systematic theology. It must be theology proper. It must be the big books and teaching the big books. No, the word doctrine here simply means teaching. It's being used in the sense, what's the Bible useful for? It's useful for teaching. You see, when you take your way through here, look, look at verse number 2 of chapter 4, where Paul tells Timothy, preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. And so here you see there's a distinction between preaching and teaching. The preaching must include teaching. It's got to include the doctrinal aspect, the teaching aspect. But the preaching will also include things like reproof and rebuke and exhortation. But as they do so, that will come on the foundation of doctrine. But look what it says in verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves. Here's the key. Teachers having itching ears. And so the word doctrine being used here is simply being used as a term to denote the communication of truth. And again, chapter 4, note the parallels. Preach the word with doctrine. Verse 4, they shall turn away their ears from the truth. So what you're seeing in this section is that the word of God is to be the source of Of all instruction. And so when you come under the word of God. You should expect. To be instructed. As to what the word of God means. And what it says. There's this need. For every believer. To grow in their knowledge of the truth. To grow in their knowledge of the faith. The things that are to be believed. That's what we often think of doctrine but also to grow in their knowledge of the law, the things that they are to obey and to do. So when you come to the house of God, you should not expect the man of God to bring a homily from some piece of classical literature. You should not expect some contemporary commentary on the world around. You should expect the man of God to open up the book of God and to say, this is what this verse means. And then take what it means and reprove and exhort and preach that passage on the ground of teaching. Now, there are so many important principles here. Reminds again, the Bible is to be our only rule of faith and practice. If this is Paul's instruction that the Bible is sufficient, all scripture is given and is useful for doctrine, 
Well, then the Bible is to be our rule of faith and practice, not man's imaginations or inventions, but the Bible and the Bible alone. And those who come to church should expect Bible. That should be their burden. You see, in the whole in the whole context, the Bible is essential for spiritual health. People, even those who profess to know the Lord, are not strong when they lack Bible. When Bible teaching falls away in churches, then you find a weakness in spiritual health. And surely we have seen that in the past 40 years. Less and less Bible teaching. Shorter sermons, counseling services, doing anything but teaching the word of God. You know, sometimes when I meet people outside our own denomination and they say, well, well, how many times do you preach in the week? This, again, this is not about me. This is about the emphasis of our denomination. So well, I, have, I have four Bible teaching opportunities at least a week. Really? That should not be unusual. I don't believe I'm overworked. Very content to bring the word of God to you four times a week. That is what I believe is my responsibility and my duty. Because I understand that you will not be spiritually healthy unless you're under the teaching of God's word. Not that, not that it's all about me. Please understand that. It's the, about the Bible. It's about the necessity of the Bible. And it happens to be in God's providence that I'm the one who does it here. And so you come under the word. Because that's what God says. The man of God is one who brings the word of God and doctrine to your attention. It's no wonder that people are so susceptible to false teaching when they have so little Bible. They don't grasp the truth to then see the error in the way they should. And so ask the Lord to give you hunger. Have you a bad attitude to the word of God? Do you wish it was done differently or better? Do you struggle to come to the word of God, Lord's Day by Lord's Day? Is once enough? I don't know your attitude. I'm not judging your heart at all. I'm just saying the word of God's clear. The Bible is necessary for doctrine. And God is saying to you, this is essential for your spiritual well-being. That's the positive. The next three all come as negatives. Reproof, correction. Well, I shouldn't say negatives, but they are, they are God's remedy for problems in the Lord's people. So, so doctrine is generally, everybody needs doctrine. But within the context of the church, there are those who need reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Reproof speaks of conviction. It speaks of a challenge. It's like a murder. And we see our errors in the murder of God's word. This is good for us. It's good for us to sit under reproofs. It's tough though, isn't it? None of us take reproof very well. Remember, chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is profitable for reproof. But the problem comes in that the reproof, the, it's not audible from this book. A human instrument has to take this book and apply it, and so the reproof to some people comes from the man and not from the word. And then we, we, we kind of get up in ourselves and say, Who does he think he is? To bring it, again, I tell you, it's about the Bible being brought to your mind and at times reproof is necessary. I need it. I've had it for the past three weeks in this passage. Challenged and reproved in your own soul under the word and the teaching of the word. 
But those who come under reproof, they then move forward and they receive correction. This word correction, again, in the original has part of the word, the word ortho, again. We saw ortho, again, rightly dividing the word of truth. The word means straight. Orthopedics, initially straight children from, from rickets and polio. They were straightened up from the deformities. Ortho, straight. And so the idea here is that those who need reproof have been bent out of shape. They're, they're not walking straight with the Lord and there is this need for correction lining them up in the word of God. God's word is a straight path for us to walk down. And there is a need for correction at times. There's also then, third, fourthly, the positive aspect of the need for instruction then. There's a problem, it's reproved, it's corrected, but you're not left there neutral. There are positive aspects regarding how you should walk and please the Lord. Now let me illustrate this to you. What, what are these three things and how do they all come together? Well, they're illustrated by Paul often in the use of a word that will not immediately come to your thought. And it is the word rather. Rather. What you're seeing here in the word of God is the Lord coming to us by his word saying, do not walk this way but rather walk this way. You'll see an example back in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and the verse number 2. This is about servants and their masters. And the servants are clearly abusing the benefits of having, un, uh, having a believing master. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren. But here's it. But rather do them service. There's the word of God. Reproving, correcting, and then instructing in righteousness, do them service because they are faithful and beloved. But let's look at it over in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And then we'll move on towards the end of this message. Ephesians chapter 4, and the verse number 28. Now, this, of course, ties in with what we saw in Bible class this morning regarding uh, God's ethics of labor. Let him that stole steal no more. There's the reproof. Whatever the nature is, there was some uh, fraud, some swindling, perhaps actually physical taking of property was not their own. Let him stole, steal no more, but rather let him labor. There's the instruction in righteousness. Working with his hands, a thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Chapter 5 and the verse number 4 regarding our speech. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. You see that? The reproof. Your language does not become a child of God. Stop it. Cut it out. Stop all the nonsense and the filthiness and the foolish jesting, but rather be one who gives thanks unto God. You see that principle here? Then chapter 4, verse 11, one last example. Sorry, chapter 5, verse 11. Regarding our personal separation holiness. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. You see the point here? On the one side you say, well, I once walked with those who are ungodly. I walk in their ungodly ways. I'm going to stop doing that now. But the Bible goes further. There is the reproof, there's the correction, and then there's the instruction in righteousness. Rather reprove them. You see how it all comes together in Paul's example? He's a faithful man of God. He's a 
man sanctified meat for the master's use. He brings doctrine. He brings reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. And the Lord's people are indeed blessed. And the man of God executes these tasks in the word of God. Recognize afresh your need of such. Place yourself under such a ministry. Whatever your future may hold, ensure, young people, that you're in a place where you sit under the teaching of God's word that is then properly applied to you as the only rule of faith and practice. And pray, please pray much for our ministers. Pray that they've committed to these things. They've not been distracted by this world. That is the proper use of the word of God. But the second thing, back to Second Timothy, the second thing again is the powerful use of the word of God. Uh, here I'm thinking about this idea of meat for the master's use. Sanctified, meat for the master's use. As McShane said, the holy man is an awful weapon in the hand of God. The master's use. The Lord using his servants so that his power is manifest. Now here what I want to do is I want to think first of all of some of the wider parallels in the word. And then eventually come back to the section at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 2. I want to think about Paul's own thoughts regarding his ministry in God's hand. His ministry under the power of God. And these, these are things to pray for. These are things that ought to dominate your prayer life regarding the Lord's work. Things to long for. For our churches, for our mission fields. Sometimes pray the prayer that so and so would be used of God. Well if someone is used of God, what does that look like? Well first of all, it is a converting ministry. You see a converting ministry only occurs when the man of God is working in God's hands. In God's hands, the preacher brings the word of God. And in God's power, those who hear the word of God, hear it not as the word of man, but as the word of God, which worketh in them that believe. See, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I, I wrestled trying to go to some, maybe perhaps a more obscure, less known passage. And I thought, well, why would you do that uh, when 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is so strong in its emphasis here? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, as Paul goes to Corinth, you have the record of that in Acts, but here you have his commentary on it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He determined not to know anything among them, verse 2, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he was with them in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. But he came with the determination that my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And the implication is, when he goes to Corinth, and people hear the word of God, and they come to believe the word of God, he's telling them the only reason they believed the word of God was the power of God in their lives. That's it. He's a holy man. He's in the Lord's hand. And when he comes and brings the word, their faith is in the power of God. That must always be our desire. A ministry used of God to the converting of lost souls. Do you believe that God is able? Do you live day by day in the wondering, will God ever save a soul again? It feels that way sometimes, doesn't it? 
2 Timothy 2 is still true. God is pleased to use his church, if I can broaden it, to use his church, a sanctified church, meet for the master's use for the converting of lost souls. I need to pray over that one. We all do. It's also a confirming ministry. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Of course, this ties in with what we've just seen regarding the proper use of the word of God. It confirms, it edifies, it strengthens the people of God when the word of God is properly used. But Colossians chapter 1, again, Paul shows us that this confirming ministry doesn't happen because of his own power inherently. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 28. Whom we preach, he's referring to Christ. He preaches Christ, warning every man. There's doctrine, there's reproof. There's instruction in righteousness. We preach Christ, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. There's his desire. His purpose is aiming at Christian maturity. He wants us under his ministry to grow day by day in the likeness of Christ Jesus. To be mature, not immature in the faith, but those who are strong in the faith, mature. Verse 29, whereunto I also labor. And I labor hard, says Paul, I strive according to his working which worketh in me mightily. Your edification in your Christian faith depends on God's working in this place. And I take you back to the question I've asked earlier on, how do you know God's at work in a church? Not just because sinners are being converted all over the place. But because God is pleased by his spirit to confirm the hearts of his people that they're kept from falling and that they grow in faith. If you've been edified in the past while, then you've been edified because God's been pleased to be at work in this place. And we are absolutely guilty sometimes of desiring some extreme display of God's power, and we're like the Pharisees and the Jews of Christ's day, will you not do a sign among us? And we've become discontented and discouraged in the, what I might say, the ordinary works of God in the midst of his people. Ordinary in the sense that they are not supernatural, in the sense that they are not intervening in nature and miraculous in that sense. But they are wonderful works of God in that he edifies us and builds us up. We should praise God for that. He is at work amongst us. Because I know, having spoken to you, that many of you have grown in your faith. You've matured. You've become more like Christ Jesus. Why? Because God's at work here. And we must not despise that. I wish this happened or that happened or other thing happened. Yeah, I wish as well sometimes. But God is pleased to work as he confirms his people in their faith and strengthens them in likeness to Christ Jesus. It's a confirming ministry. And finally, it is a contending ministry. Again, back to 2 Corinthians 10 just for a second. Then we'll go back to 2 Timothy 2. 2 Corinthians 10. These are the ministries that God uses. Seeing souls converted, seeing the saints edified, but also a ministry that contends for the truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but, please note, 
mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And what does it look like? Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. It's a contending ministry against falsehood. But such a contending ministry is only truly properly exercised when it's mighty through God. You see what I'm showing you here? Meat for the master's use. In God's strong right hand, sinners are converted under the power of the ministry. The saints are strengthened. But it's also a contending ministry that contends for the truth against falsehoods. And that takes us back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And when you go back there, you see an example of Paul's own instruction to Timothy regarding this contending ministry. Verse number 24. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the knowledge of the truth, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. You'll see in your outline there are two very simple points, and then we're finished. First of all, please note the perilous condition of the false teachers. They are guilty of sin. Just call it out. And you think, well, they, 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 they don't know what they're saying. They don't, they don't really know what they're about. It's a matter of ignorance. They're not really culpable for their ignorance. Well, why does Paul make it clear that their need is to know repentance? False teachers may have different degrees of culpability regarding their background and what they've been told by other people. But ultimately, false teaching is a sin. And those who are guilty of false teaching, their very souls are in danger. They are caught in a satanic trap. Verse 26. They're in the snare of the devil and they've been taken captive by him at his will. That is the case, of course, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where you have the description of the devil as an angel of light. And in 2 Corinthians 11, verse number 13, such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, and no marvel for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers... You know, false teachers here in 2 Timothy chapter 2 are not looked upon as being reprobates beyond forgiveness and repentance. But as they engage in false teaching, they become prey to the devil's devices. They're his trap. This is spiritual warfare. This is part of Satan's subtlety. That those who seem to walk with the Lord, it is possible for them to be caught in a trap of the devil and so thereby sow false teaching among the church. Oh, we need to pray. But whilst they are part of this satanic trap, they are also personal responsibility. Verse number 26, 25. They oppose themselves and they are responsible, verse 26, to recover themselves. The idea of recovering themselves has the sense of coming to their senses, having been confronted by the truth. 
And so you have their perilous condition, but you also have then the gracious intervention of the faithful minister. Verse 24. The servant of the Lord must not strive. We saw that already. This idea of not being contentious and argumentative. But be gentle unto all men. Apt to teach. Now we often use that term being apt to teach in a, in a very broad sense. Regarding an elder's ability to, to inform the minds of people regarding the word of God. And that's true. But here it's very particular. It is an aptness to teach those who are guilty of falsehood. Thereby assuming an understanding of what is false and an ability to teach the truth in correction to that falsehood. Apt to teach in meekness, instructing those. And so the response to false teaching is a gracious intervention of the man of God to instruct those false teachers that they could indeed be won to repentance, rescued from Satan's trap. That's Paul's instruction here to Timothy. A gracious mission conducted in a gracious manner. In meekness, instructing those. And again, the false teaching involved here is not of a low level and just minor things. And the false teaching here subverts the hearers. It increases on ungodliness. It overthrows the faith of some. And yet even... Before such profoundly ungodly false teaching, Paul tells Timothy, be meek in your contentions. We may think that meekness means compromise. If we're nice to somebody teaching error, that must mean we approve of their errors. If we're gentle towards them and kind towards them, therefore we must approve of them. Not at all. Meekness is not compromise. Compromise is compromise. See, when we find ourselves contending, and listen, I have Celtic blood. I'm an Ulster Scot. Ulster Scots Presbyterians tend to fight. And so when we fight and we are contentious, there is easily the tendency to come across as being harsh and rude. True contention to be faithful is to be meek and patient in that contention. Because that's what it says here. In meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. Firm, clear, precise, and yet faithful, patient, and meek. Why? Why is the manner so important? Because in our manner, we communicate to people that the Lord receives sinful men, including repentant false teachers. Your words can be faithful, but your manner can so conflict with your words that you confuse your hearers. That rather than wooing them to Christ, you give them the idea that God will have nothing to do with them. It matters how you do this sort of stuff. That you're meek in your contending for the faith. So what does the church want for their, from their minister? What should you want from my ministry? 
What should you desire and pray for, for denomination or mission fields? You should desire that souls are saved, a converting ministry. You should desire that saints are strengthened, a confirming ministry. And you should desire that sheep are secure from error, a contending ministry. You want all of those things. Not one or two of them, but all of them. And the only way you'll get all of those things is when God's hand is around the man of God. No man can do these things in their own strength. Only God does these things through faithful ministries. We must be in prayer. Amen. May God use his word in our hearts today. Let's all bow together, please. Eternal God and Father, we do thank you for the instruction we receive from this portion as the inspired apostle taught Timothy and other faithful men. And we do pray for a denomination. Oh God, we need, we need your power to work amongst us. When we think of our ministries, when we think of our churches, from Phoenix to Cloverdale, from Boston to Orlando, the corners of the U.S. and Canada. We think of our Mexican brethren. We think of our missionaries in Jamaica, in the Czech Republic, and Liberia. We realize, oh God, that we're seeking to be faithful. We think of our Ulster Presbytery, our, our Nepalese Presbytery, the missionaries in Spain and in Australia, Kenya and Uganda. Dear Father, we pray that we'd be useful in your hand. Oh God, sanctify us. We pray for a church family to pray diligently. We ask, O oh God, that you would grant unto your saints the benefit of faithful ministry. For your glory and for their eternal good. Bless this Lord's Day. Again, may the Sabbath be a light to your souls. Bring us back together again in your will. Meet with us, O oh God. May your presence indeed be our delight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.